0: Hello, and welcome back to the program. My name is Michael Finney. Today, I am joined by Daniel Romero. Would you like to say hello?
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and give some background, um, you know, as a developer or as a, a media expert?
1: Yeah, so I'm originally from the East Coast, moved out to San Francisco in 2013 to work in technology, something I'd always wanted to do. And when I first moved out to San Francisco, my friend from college at the time, or, you know, my friend from college, uh, Fred Ursum, who was co-founder of, of Coinbase, really kind of tried to convince me, hey, you should come and work at this uh, company that I have, Coinbase. Uh, we just raised a Series A from Union Square Ventures, Fred Wilson, and I think this Bitcoin thing is going to be big. And I categorically dismissed it as a Ponzi scheme and <laughs> didn't think uh, anything of it. Um, but when I was finally out in San Francisco for that first year, I found that all of these smart people I kept meeting all had an opinion on Bitcoin one way or another and and an understanding of it and and kind of wanted to debate the merits and the nuances of it. And, and I was a complete dope and, and hadn't even read the white paper. So I finally ended up reading the white paper. Uh, I think it was kind of December of 2013. And like many others once i I kind of read it cover to cover, which is not that long, I think it's like eight pages right uh, I, I couldn't stop thinking about Bitcoin and, and kind of crypto. It really wasn't called crypto then it was it was really Bitcoin, but the idea of like what a permissionless public blockchain, right like this kind of new type of computer uh, what what things you could build with it and and at the time, this is pre ethereum, you actually had um, a bunch of people building stuff. On Bitcoin itself, with with the very rudimentary programming language, I think you know it's called script or whatever um, that you can actually you you can build some very basic versions of of call it, call it smart contracts on it uh, Bitcoin. I remember in in 2014 there was a, uh, a project called Lighthouse that a developer named Mike Hearn, who was pretty well known at the time, he had been at Google, definitely demoed. Bitcoin 2014 in Amsterdam, which I I was at that conference as kind of like at that point I had actually joined Coinbase, and it it was a Kickstarter built completely on Bitcoin, which is like a super impressive technical achievement. If if you know building smart contracts on Ethereum is hard, like just imagine doing that on Bitcoin. And so I, I think in that era, it was really the kind of like ethos of Bitcoin was still very much of this is a completely new way to go build applications and that was that was the promise that actually got me into crypto as i thought we were on the precipice of a big wave in in new consumer applications built on top of blockchains in in the same way that and remember it's 2013 2014 the kind of uh, mobile revolution was only at that point uh six or seven years old so so people were people were i think eagerly optimistic that this this was the next platform shift, right? That maybe VR, like AI, had already kind of gone through multiple boom bust cycles of like, oh, this is an overpromised thing. I think in 2014, right around when I was joining Coinbase, it was like chatbots, and uh, you know th- those obviously are now a big thing again. But like at the time, like everyone was like, oh, the future is everything is a chatbot, and and that didn't necessarily pan out. So I, I think that's how I got into crypto is is kind of thinking that like we were going to be building all these new applications on top of of uh you know at the time bitcoin and then for the first few years I was at coinbase um it panned out very differently like bitcoin really didn't go anywhere as a development platform uh i think it solidified itself and in in some ways it's it's the biggest mark to go after as just kind of like an alternative version of fiat money right like an like something you can actually opt out of the fiat system that isn't you know a, a hard commodity like gold but it was kind of during that period of the wilderness for Coinbase is is when, you know, Ethereum started to gain a little bit of traction. And that's I think where my attention since since that period has shifted very much over to that original promise of being able to build new apps and services on top of kind of these new types of computers, public blockchains. Um and yeah, so that that's uh that's my background in a in a nutshell.
0: I think you make some really interesting points about cycles there. Um particularly uh, mobile as a as a computing cycle and then perceiving blockchains as a distributed computing platform in that way and also the AI thing obviously we're kind of in a new bloom for that right now with uh, just all the LLMs that we're seeing kind of popping up and also the the visual stuff in regards to mid journey and uh, stable diffusion. You know, I have my preferences for those things. And I think, you know, it's fine to go down all the different routes um, whether or not, you know, you like the language stuff or you like the graphical elements. And I think that the analog to that is really kind of what we've seen happen over the last 10 years with blockchains, too, and that there are all these different flavors and distributions. I make the comparison to, you know, Linux in that sense, where they have kind of slightly different optimizations. Um, You know, obviously, like what you were saying initially there in regards to Bitcoin and how it kind of, uh, you know, had uh, compute functionality. And then, you know, some of that's been stripped out of the BTC model and has been kind of moved over into different chains, you know, most notably, I would say, Ethereum and uh, most successfully in regards to the smart contract stuff that goes on there. Um, And, and recently, like the art community that's kind of popped up around that too, I think is, you know, it's hard to, to not mention those things, you know, where, where are you paying attention to uh, the most in regards to Ethereum or in general, blockchains? What's, what's keeping your eye?
1: Well, I think I'm, I'm mostly spending time thinking about Farcaster. And so our current plan is to deploy the kind of permissionless version of Farcaster. We're still very much in a beta in and in a kind of permissioned beta in, in, in that you can't just go sign up for Farcaster. You need an invite right now. But eventually, you know, hopefully by the end of this year, it will be a Credibly neutral protocol that anyone can kind of go sign up and, and do whatever they want with. Um, we plan to deploy that on Ethereum L1. So my my general interest is is in the EVM world, uh, but really right now is Ethereum L1 because that's that's where we're going to be. But if I was to kind of say like separate, okay, w- Farcaster itself from like what do I find the most interesting in. In just like crypto land right now, I I, I very much am interested in how the inter, the interplay between Ethereum L1 and other kind of EVM compatible chains, specifically you know you call them L2s, but um, even like Polygons ZK EVM and you know some of these other ZK uh, you know attempts, like how how that all just kind of plays out, because I think that there was a meme in the in the last kind of up market is that oh ethereum can't scale and so therefore we need completely new l1s that are focused on scalability and where we are now i think in in the kind of down market is you lose some of that sheen and hype that that come with you know the people who are basically uh talking about the ethereum can't scale because they have a better alternative now it turns out it's like okay the developer communities in most of those other ecosystems not all of them and and uh you know I think it's still worthwhile for people to try building them uh they they just they're much more fickle right like a lot of those people probably have pivoted to ai because they were they were kind of mercenaries they were showing up because they thought there was like a quick way to make money whereas i think you have what a lot of people in the ethereum ecosystem that are interested in it is there's a little bit more of an ideological bent and that's always a little dangerous because obviously you kind of get in something like i don't know toxic bitcoin maximalism or, or something like that and and you can see even elements of that within ethereum that aren't great but I do think um my point of view is that these these blockchains are just going to take a while to to really develop and for the applications built with them to actually start to reach scale. And so in order for that to happen you're going to just need some dedicated missionary type people who are just they they actually are there for the the technology and 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 kind of like everything about it rather than oh, can I make money in, in the, you know, 12 to 18 months? Um, and so that that is the area that I'm most excited about. And I think generally uh, with everything going on in AI, um, and, and to be fair, I, I think it's justified in that the, there's some pretty amazing achievements and, and leaps of progress that we've seen in a very short period of time on the AI side. I mean, I've been Absolutely. playing around mid-journey a lot recently, and uh, I just... It's, it's it's an incredible piece of software. And the fact the iteration year over year has just been, you know, incredible to look at like a V1 or V2 version of mid journey to, well, I think they're on V5 right now. Yeah. But going back to the, like, so where does my interest fall? Um, crypto, I think is now starting to be sufficiently contrarian again, right? It's it's like been an easy punching bag for all of 2022 as, as asset prices came down and then you have the FTX stuff and, um, but my sense is like if you're still willing to build in crypto, right now, like a you're starting to show your ideological missionary type colors, which I think is a good thing, and b it actually also is an indication that you you're probably a little bit more of an independent thinker, like you don't need the validation of like whatever's popular on Twitter, uh, in your bio, and and so I I think like NFTs is a great example of this, where the people that are actually innovating on a new functionality with NFTs and and just you know playing around with new ideas right now um are probably like if i was to bet on like what where are we going to be two or three years from now like what is more mainstream it will be the stuff that that's happening right now and this has happened in every crypto cycle that i've been through this is my third um is the the people that still kind of like have enthusiasm and enjoyment despite the macro conditions in the market um that is, that's the area to pay attention to. And, and so I, I think there's just a lot of interesting stuff right now happening with open editions and NFTs and the idea that like, okay, if, if gas fees come down because you're using an L2, like what does it mean to, to kind of like, like a piece of content, right? And, and so obviously we have an implementation on Farcaster, but the idea of like, okay, well, if you charge a little bit, even if it's just gas... That creates, by definition, scarcity relative to something that if if it's just like a packet, it's effectively free. Um, Does that increase signal, which is something that I think in any instance of social media, going back to Forecaster, you're looking for is like what what new signals can you add into an algorithm that can help surface the best content? Um, I'm not quite sure that like just because it costs money that that will actually indicate quality. Like in some ways. There could be very much adverse effects of that, but it's it's an an idea space that I'm I'm finding increasingly interesting to think about, and helps that you know friendly with Jacob Horn and and at at Zora, and so I think a lot of like what he's thinking about, I kind of filter through my own lens of of kind of trying to build interesting things that that people actually want to use.
0: There's a couple different things that I want to address there. So the first is I definitely agree with the S curve maturity cyclical nature of uh you know the blockchain space and what's happening there obviously like price as an index of interest it's hard to to delineate that um just because it obviously makes people open their eyes but in terms of the development community and specifically what is happening with farcaster um inside of that community, you guys have a really strong developer community on that protocol. Uh, Obviously, the most notable piece there is Warpcast, uh, which is the social network that I'm pretty sure is like the main team and main push of of that team, as far as I understand.
1: Yeah, so Warpcast, technically the name of the company is Merkle Manufacturing, and it's always a little tricky when you kind of go through a rebrand, but we we effectively just say warpcast now, but the the if you kind of want to get the full story, Varun and I started the company Merkle Manufacturing. We're exploring a bunch of ideas. Ended up started working on an idea that at the time we were calling RSS Plus, named it Farcaster, and that was a how could you make RSS, which is kind of this permissionless old school protocol for distributing information, yeah. more competitive with with something like Twitter, and, and Farcaster kind of became the name for the protocol. And we had our first decision point of should we be um, naming the protocol and the initial app because we built the initial app something different. And our point of view was in the early days it'd just be too confusing. It's like okay, you you literally are two of you and you don't have any users and you already have two brands. <laughs> right. And so we just called it Farcaster and Farcaster. And well, three
0: two Merkel Manufactory would be another one. Right
1: right, right. in terms of well, that was just kind of the the name of the company. I think calling the company Farcaster, there are trademark issues, whereas uh, a protocol, um, you, right. you can just kind of call it that because no one, no one owns the quote word, but they you can have a trademark, so th- there's a little bit of inside baseball in that. Yeah, so um basically, for the longest time, we were just like Farcaster, right? Like we're working on Farcaster, like the app is Farcaster, that's easy. Then we were not so fundraised last summer. And I think we wanted to be clear is like, you know, there's a team building this and a company. And so Merkle Manufacturing kind of got identified. And, and for a while, we were just kind of referring it to the the Merkle client, our caster client. But then, we especially in the last six months, we've had a whole bunch of other developers start building on the protocol. And we we felt like it was not fair to those other developers that if if this is supposed to be a credibly neutral protocol just like ethereum or email then you you shouldn't have an official app that's called like ethereum or email on either of those things and so the analogy i always give is email you have gmail hotmail yahoo mail people get the concept of like there are multiple different providers on top of this protocol uh in ethereum obviously you can use metamask or you can use rainbow or coinbase wallet again a, a client on top of uh, protocol web browsers, another good example, but with Farcaster, like we wanted to make it clear. So we renamed the Merkle manufacturing developed Farcaster client to Warpcast. But I think over time you just, we'll just always say, you know, Oh, the Warpcast team Warpcast. And, and so Warpcast itself is, is 10 people and half of us are working more or less full time on the, the client, like the, the actual app. And half of that team is actually the kind of like lead developers of of the protocol, right? And I think part of that comes from the fact that when we kicked off the kind of initial beta after, you know, spending about nine months working on on the initial version, Varun and I um, knew that the underlying Forecaster protocol was very much like a MVP v1. And it was like, can we actually just prove that people are willing to use something even if it's rough around the edges? And that worked out pretty well. It took us about a year to, like, kind of, like, kickstart enough usage. But in doing so, got to the place where um, we realized, okay, here are all the things that we need to do to upgrade the underlying protocol. And so we did that. And uh, we're, we're in the process of kind of launching the, the core pieces of functionality from that. The first is called the Farcaster Hubs, which are technically live right now for a, a small group of developers and they'll be permissionless, you know, call it in May of this year. And um, then there are two other major milestones to getting the protocol upgraded is one moving from Testnet, where we are today, to Ethereum mainnet. And then the last one is to kind of drop the sign-up gating, um, which I think we, we kind of have a high-level idea on how to go do this, but I think we're really sensitive to, we really want to be growing the protocol with quality and i think a just drop the gate would you'd be we'd be overwhelmed with like low quality and spammy posts pretty quickly um and so having kind of like strategy for making that a work within warpcast our own client but more importantly that if you were to go build on the protocol you don't have to uh spend a significant amount of engineering effort rebuilding your own version of like spam filters uh so i I think trying to think through how we can actually make it a primitive that lives at the protocol level or or kind of at least the kind of out-of-the-box experience for a new developer, that's going to have a significant impact on on developer adoption, um, you know, kind of once the protocol is completely permissionless. So so I, I think, like, to go all the way back, in terms of how we built the developer community, it was build a, an initial version of the protocol and the initial product it took us a year before anyone started building on anything. And we didn't even have developer APIs. It was kind of people reverse engineering stuff. But because the V1 protocol, despite it being pretty MVP, was still an actual protocol, people were able to permissionlessly do that. And I think where we are now is kind of two years, two and a half years in, we're finally at the point where we're really investing in the developer experience in terms of like documentation, the, this the kind of like hubs and, and things like that. And so I've kind of given advice to people who are thinking about building protocols that developers up front and just kind of building features hoping they show up is probably a much harder path and, and less likely to succeed versus whatever protocol you're trying to build. Do actually the hard work of building the initial app and getting your first users for the protocol. And I think that in of itself is much more attractive to developers, right? Like developers don't care about your technology. They care about are people using your technology? And then then they'll evaluate your technology second in the sense that like, oh, it's like, okay, can I build anything interesting with this? But but they don't start with interesting technology, what can I build? They start with like, oh, there's a bunch of people using this. Let me let me go build something and see if I can convince the existing people who are using this to use it. And that that I think applies to to all blockchains. And and so there's this kind of like meme that I don't that I don't quite understand. I, I have a theory on it. It's like, if if you're someone who is maybe a little bit more systems thinking oriented and and deterministic, the idea of like having to convince fickle humans to use something sounds really messy and hard, which it is. And so you'd much rather just like build the elegant technical piece of software protocol and then just kind of be grumpy that people should be using it because it's so great. But that's just like not how the world works. And so I I think that that's the best way to get developers to use your thing, especially a protocol, is have users actually using the thing when they show up.
0: I think those are good points. And there's a comparison I want to make in regards to what you're saying to the early days of Twitter, since we kind of brought that up and the developer community that existed there and how it was integrated. A lot of those functions or features were integrated into the main app, which is kind of what you guys are striving to shy away from. It sounds more like that. You want the developer community to retain a sense of ownership of some of those things. However, obviously if a feature is really attractive, then any of those developers could integrate that into their offering. Um, So it'll be a little, a little competitive in that way. Uh, Everybody will use the protocol but which client or versions of clients or uh, features of clients become attractive becomes a UI, UX sort of thing?
1: I think there's two ways of thinking about this. So the the first is the initial set of apps are going to be very influenced by the the kind of reference application. And in that case, that's Warpcast. And so I think you're going to have a lot of people building either kind of like riffs on that and in terms of just thinking like, okay, well, this is the feed that Warpcast has. I should be able to display it similarly or maybe I add a little bit of features here or there. Um, and then similarly, I think infrastructure tends to be either a low enough level primitive that it's generalizable or or it tends to be a little bit more targeted towards like the shape of what Warpcast is, is Twitter. So I'm going to build tools that would be useful for people who want to use something like Twitter. I think where the protocol steps up to a new level and, and, and thing that I'm actually quite excited for is when people start to to look at the primitives and say, well, there's nothing stopping me from building a completely different type of social network that isn't around you know, short text based posts and is maybe more visual or, or more, um, I don't know, even interactive in the sense that like just having everything be either reply or reaction uh, maybe you start to extend the protocol, and, and you say, "Hey, we're actually going to have this be—I don't know—I a, like a, a transaction or a an agreement or a—you uh, could even imagine interactions that that kind of start to look more like a game, but the, but the underlying primitive of the kind of like verifiable identity that has some auditable history, so you can kind of like verify, like, is is, is this the real Dan Romero or not?" And um, all the infrastructure for distributing the kind of like packets is the wrong term. We use the term messages. But if you just kind of think of Farcaster, it's like, no, it's a, it's just like a blockchain in the sense that like it's a generalizable thing that if I put a piece of data into it, in into the kind of network of hubs, it's going to propagate across the network. And then any application can permissionlessly look at the data and say, this data is interesting to me. This data is not interesting to me. And so the analogy I like to point out is in Ethereum, if you are building something that has something to do with NFTs, right, like OpenSea, you just care about all the stuff that happens on the Ethereum blockchain that has an ERC-721 or an ERC-1155 designation, and you can ignore everything else, right? Whereas in the case of, I don't know, uh, DeFi Llama or or something like that, or or, or, uh, DeFi Pulse, you're just like, all I care about are your e- e- C20s and like, uh, you know, how, how that all plays together. And so I think that is where the social network protocol, and whether it's Farcast or something else, that's where it starts to take off is where you have now um, parallel instances um, of social networks that don't necessarily need to be overlapping with each other, but still have some amount of shared identity primitive. Because that actually, in of itself is is I think useful, right and and they can share some of that infrastructure because it's like, why, why do you need to go rebuild that? Um, get, getting a hundred unique hubs running uh, up and running, and then having to do that if like, okay, you want to build Twitter versus someone wants to build Instagram now you have to go get you know multiple people to run different hubs that that seems silly versus the ability to kind of just share some thin layer of infrastructure and then you kind of have unique experience built on top of that. In the same way that like, imagine if there was an NFT Ethereum and then there was an ERC 20, you know, ERC 20 DeFi Ethereum. Um, that kind of sounds silly. It's just like, well, why don't you just have like one global computer that you can kind of go do this on. Um, and in our view, if if we could have done everything on chain, within some reasonable amount of cost in UX, great. It's, it's just like, why why I have to go reinvent the wheel? But I think from our point of view in kind of approaching it from first principles is the identity is actually worth putting on a blockchain and, and dealing with that level of friction and cost because it it actually puts it into a kind of type of computer that can't be mucked with um, by any one individual company, country, organization, right? Like you truly own your, your Farcaster identity uh as a result of it just living in an Ethereum smart contract. Right. Like you need to make sure that smart contract doesn't have any back doors or admin keys, but but that that's achievable, right? You can you can deploy it a non-upgradable smart contract. Um whereas the social layer, like the actual like replies and likes and profiles, for us that is a A, it's more ephemeral. Like I think people Don't worry about, like, the permanence of some of that stuff. And if you really care about it, you just have your own website. But I think for the average person on using any one of these networks, it's like they care about that authenticity, the identity. So getting that right is is really important. But otherwise, people are actually willing to, I don't know, like trade off a bunch of things if they can get speed and convenience. And, And so that's what we've really tried to optimize the, like, farcaster l2 is not the right term but like the off-chain data structure that is farcaster and farcaster hubs is really focused on getting authenticity um, of, of the post in terms of like anyone can actually verify that, that this was in fact you know the person who has the username dwr within the farcaster identity system but then everything else is really optimized for kind of like speed convenience and, and that's actually more than anything it's targeted at developers, right? So it's like get up and running with a new Farcaster client pretty easily and then have full uh, access to the global state of the network in the same way that an Ethereum node actually um, does that pretty well. Granted, Ethereum nodes take a while to sync now because they, they actually preserve all of history. A Farcaster actually has a has kind of like a bounded limit per user. So hubs are actually a much simpler thing to run. Um but yeah that that's that's generally how I think about it.
0: What do you think the strengths of the warpcast network are in comparison to other social networks that aren't centralized? uh you know, for example, we saw Mastodon get pretty popular last year as a federated model, and uh you know more recently kind of seeing blue Sky get a little bit of attention uh as they've moved into test flight with their iOS app and things like that.
1: I think the, you're going to have many different attempts at protocols, uh, for social and, and actually relative to other instances, I think that protocol, social protocols, like th- there's a decent chance that you have many, um, and many being defined as like, call it a 10 or 10 or 20, maybe closer to 10 then like the web which is effectively it's like the web 1 and like that's that's it or email is kind of like the only real messaging protocol right like you have big messaging apps but i think um if you just look at these web 2 social networks right instagram and twitter like in theory like you can make twitter do all the stuff that instagram does but it just again goes back to this idea of like canonical clients do shape the the a kind of like shelling point for development on that network. And then in the case of like Instagram, there is no such thing as a third-party client. Um, but I think the, if I was to guess, like what will happen is that there'll probably be a winning at scale, decentralized version of what Twitter does today. There will be one of those. But I think again, going back to this idea that like whether it's Farcaster or something else, there's a large idea space in terms of like what you can go build. And my my hope is that actually, rather than just trying to replace what already exists, is you actually get the net new. Uh, like humans are infinitely creative, in, in my opinion. And like there will always be new ways for people to want to express themselves and connect with each other. And part of the fun, I think, of of a new social network is is maybe a new social primitive. And so my hope is rather than kind of being like very focused on the frame of like, okay, well, Elon has Twitter and then there are kind of a bunch of Twitter alternatives and like, which one replaces it and or wins is like fine that, that there's, there's probably some version of that, 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 that where that happens. But I think the far more interesting thing to focus on and like some areas that we're just thinking about at least from a protocol level are what can you actually do to expand the Overton window? Um, for what you can do with social networks. And a a good example of this, if you can make the assumption at a root level that every user has a working public and private key pair, um, in this case, an Ethereum address, which is what people on Farcaster are required to have. um, One, there's just like a bunch of end-to-end encrypted types of experiences that you can start to offer um, permissionlessly as a developer, because you know everyone who's on this network can can satisfy that requirement, um, and, and they already have it right. Like you don't have to get them to start up a new thing, back up a key. Like you know all all that stuff. Like every single person that ends up using Farcaster for a prolonged period of time and has successfully backed up their key, and we've had plenty of people lose their key. So like thinking about the UX on that has has been a challenge. But I think we have ways to improve it. But Every single person you kind of like onboard into that new reality becomes now um, an addressable user for a future developer who kind of wants to build an experience like that. And then thinking a little further out, you you get to a place where zero knowledge proofs are an area where there's a ton of research that's going in. Like we're starting to see some kind of like practical applications of them as it relates to social. so, there's a project um, by one of our, our kind of friends, Lakshman Shankar, who um, is working on an anonymous way for people to discuss governance proposals within the noun ecosystem. So, you know, nouns are an NFT project. They are pretty active in terms of like voting on, on things to spend the kind of project's treasury on. And one of these cool things is like, you can actually have a a verified noun owner. So I I don't have to tell you which noun I own, but I can just prove that I actually have a noun and an address and then be able to publish a message that is guaranteed to be uh, anonymous in the sense that I, I, there's no central server that is this promising not to leak the information. It's just like, you can just magically do that with encryption. And so I think we're just starting to scratch the surface on that idea space. And as, the kind of like tooling and just like widespread use of ZKs increases, I would imagine you're going to get new types of speech that pop up. And the analogy I always pull from history is a foundational part of the ratification of the constitution in the United States. What uh, were the Federalist Papers, which were a series of anonymous newspaper op-eds written by, Alexander Hamilton, uh, James Madison, and John Jay in a New York newspaper. And they were under the pseudonym Publius. And yes, you can have those things exist without, you know, cryptographic primitives, but they're vastly, uh, you know, simplified and or superior from a permissionless standpoint to be able to just like build a system that would allow that, for that to happen where I could basically take some credential that exists on a blockchain uh, over here, and it doesn't even need to exist in a blockchain. It could just be any any cryptographic credential that people can at least go look at and say, "Yep, th- th- this uh, speech is actually verified to have come from a, an individual that controls the private key that's associated with with this credential." And so, I think that is a an area that I get pretty excited about. And so, if you start to like then compare, like, okay, Farcaster versus you know, one of the more federated uh, versions of social media that's tied to DNS and doesn't require every user to have a public and private key as the kind of like the base identity primitive, then I think you start to, if if you just kind of extrapolate out, I think they start to diverge in terms of like what is actually possible um, in terms of what can be built.
0: So let me ask you this. In addition to hubs, what are some of the notable developments or advances for the Farcaster protocol or Warpcast network that you're looking forward to for the remainder of 2023?
1: Well, the milestones I mentioned, getting hubs out to a permissionless state, right? I think there's a mental model I have is if someone has an interesting idea to build in social, what is the boot up time from I have the idea to I have a working V1 of... You know some amount of that idea implemented, and I think that the the shorter that time, and and there's ways to shave off minutes every part of the process. But it's it's kind of like okay, I go to the Farcaster homepage, I click the protocol, I download the the hub, get it into you know my infrastructure, get it spun up, start developing against it. There's just like a lot of work to to get all that done, but that that needs to happen. And I think that the kind of like core identity primitive needs to actually prove to people rather than me telling people that, like, hey, this is going to be this um, incredibly neutral uh, identity layer that when you actually have an FID and a, and a Farcaster username, it's something that is sovereignly owned by you and no one else. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to make that argument when you're still on testnet. And so getting those contracts to a a kind of blockchain like Ethereum that is decentralized and provides... I think kind of the like a world-class security guarantee, right? It's like, I think that there are two blockchains that exist today, Bitcoin and Ethereum that, that reach that kind of like, if you go deploy something on it, um, in the case of Bitcoin, it's like your actual Bitcoin that you hold. And on Ethereum, it's, you know, a smart contract, you, there's no practical way for people to go muck with it. And I know there's plenty of tinfoil hat. People would be like, Oh, well the Ethereum foundation, if they fork it and sure. like, look at what happened with the Dow hack. But like, Okay, like I, I don't want to argue with those people if that's what you believe, great. Like from my standpoint, um, an Ethereum smart contract is um pretty ironclad in terms of y- you have to live with the programming. So if there's an exploit in it, like that's your own issue. But in terms of if you were to write uh, a sufficiently well-constructed contract, that contract's gonna run the same way as long as Ethereum continues to kind of have the core promise of, of what the EVM is. And so Getting the, the core identity primitive onto chain is important. And then I think the last thing, um, which is, you know, I've had an evolving perspective on this, um, is getting to permissionless signups. I think for a while I was kind of saying, hey, we want to actually be permission for the first million users, right? Like we, 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 we're, we're not in a rush to, to kind of like grow too fast because I think we're, we're trying to grow with quality and, and solve problems along the way. But I think where I've maybe evolved a little bit is there is just like this mental blocker for people. If they have to like, you know, the classic one with Farcaster is for a while. It was like DM me for an invite, but the idea is like, Oh wait, I can't just like programmatically do stuff. And I have to like, there, there is still kind of like one bit of call it corporate infrastructure. That is a kind of like choke point. Um, I think that that there's a lot of latent developer interest, it gets turned off by that, at least within crypto, right? Like, because we, we are approaching early users who tend to be a little bit more ideological or are there because they believe in the future. But, like, I think developers, rightfully so, have been burned over the last decade of these different development platforms, which is whether it's, like, Facebook um, changing their rules, Twitter's changing their APIs. Right. I think, um, you know, even even the app store, where it's, it, it feels like the mobile app stores have gotten more restrictive and extractive right? like you can't link to open in a mobile app and that's just like a, an arbitrary rule that apple decides and it's their right to do it right like that they control uh the app store because they built the iphone but i think getting to a place where a developer can look at farcaster read through all the code understand the white paper uh look at the smart contracts on chain and then actually say oh interesting if i build on this the risk that I get, quote, rugged as a developer, um, is extremely low. Okay, I'm actually going to be willing to invest significant time and energy into into building on this. And so I think that is the thing I weigh off against, like growing more slowly and with quality, is getting to a permissionless state and then actually just trying to solve for the things, uh, the downsides of that, right? So the downsides of that is, the you know, bunch of low quality scams, spam, that kind of stuff starts to pop up in the network, which if you don't manage it at the client level and or think about how to make it for other clients, um, it just kind of like makes the network not attractive to build on. Um, And I think one thing to consider is like, despite the app stores kind of pain in the ass process, the app store kind of doing a good job making sure that there aren't any like scammy and, um, you know, malicious apps on average, right? Like in the sense that y- you've had probably some sneak through, but for the most part, not, um, a has just like made mobile just like this amazing platform where like you have billions of people using mobile devices who otherwise probably would have never installed any software on a computer cause it would have just been too hard. And so you've massively increased the, uh, addressable market for, for, If I build a piece of software, I can actually now ship it to literally billions of people around the world. But that's a result of putting a quality bar of like, it's gated to get on there. And so that's where I was going to go back and forth is like, it's against the crypto ethos of permissionless public blockchains. It's the thing that I got into originally. But if you actually want to build something that has, quote, billions of people using it, then I think thinking deeply about like kind of like what is that average user experience and and how do you ha- make it as high quality as possible? Um, because th- that average user doesn't actually care about the, the ethos and or, um, you know, the ideology, but they care about it's just the user experience. And so if you can get the best of both worlds where it's like somehow you've put some default quality bar while still having it be permissionless and, and, I don't know if that's even possible but like that that that's the thing to try to solve for because then what you get is the permissionless innovation increases the total aggregate number of apps and uh the average user gets the benefit of all those apps without having to like be kind of confused and or worried that they're going to get you know some malware on their computer and I actually think that that the best analogy here is the web is the best example of this right it's like you usually don't have to worry in, other than very extreme cases and and you know very rare zero day and you'd have to be really targeted, but if I click a link, I I know that it's not going to mess up my computer. Where you can have things get messed up is you inputting information like a phishing site or something, but you but you know that like clicking a link is not dangerous. Um, there was that er- earlier era when you had like crazy pop-ups and all that stuff, but that's basically been solved. And so now what what's interesting about a link is like. It just becomes this really easy thing. Anyone's willing to kind of go do it and try it. And if you run into something you don't like, the back button is just like click and then, you're, and then you're there. And so I think the web is probably the best example of that like kind of mix of permissionlessness. Anyone can go set up and start a website mixed with like really, really nice user experience on average. And I think that, that that's what we want to kind of try to achieve with Farcaster as a social network.
0: Are there any remaining points that you want to make that you feel like we haven't touched on yet?
1: I think one thing that I go back and forth on is this idea that social networks, um, they, the only ones that work grow virally and it happens in kind of like lightning in a bottle moments. And, I think that this actually it's a little bit more of a messy history. It's like certain social networks took a while to figure out kind of their form factor. I'm I'm pretty sure Pinterest uh, is very different than where where it kind of found its first niche of people that were interested in it. Um, Facebook is even another good example. Yes, it grew really fast uh, within the communities that it originally targeted, but it was sign-up gated for two and a half years. And if you go back and read the contemporaneous writing about Facebook, it was lumped as the college social network. Right. And the assumption at the time was like, Oh, well, my space was getting, you know, bought, got bought for 800 million or whatever. And it was that much bigger. And, and so I think, um, it's almost like people fell into some lazy thinking in the last few years of thinking that social networks, the way they grow is like, Oh, well, because they're social and they have some K factor, like they, they just They blow up, right? Like Snapchat blew up, TikTok blew up, um, Instagram sort of. Like there was a version of Instagram that didn't work and then they, you know, iterated and got to one that, that did start to work. And so I also think like YouTube was a very different network in the first kind of five years, maybe even 10 years of its existence compared to where it is now. And so I think that these things tend to be a lot more dynamic and and they can change. And, um, I think where, you know, I would, I would love Farcaster to be growing really, really fast. Um, uh, but at the same time, there is something to be said for it's 2023. So you're not, you're not pioneering social media. Like you, in, in some ways it's actually a pretty mature category. And so you have to, have thought through a lot of different things that relative to when, you know, whether it's Twitter or YouTube or Facebook or Instagram got started, they didn't have to deal with because if anything, people were kind of making fun of people for using it. It's like a oh, Twitter, like, you are gonna post a photo of what you had for lunch, like eating a sandwich. Ha ha. It's so stupid. 10 years later, this is an existential threat to democracy. It needs to be, you know, regulated and, uh, controlled and, Oh my God, like we can't allow one person to own Twitter. It's a public company. Like So so the narrative um, can be very different at the beginning when everyone thinks it's kind of stupid. And if you just kind of continue to make progress over a long enough period of time, that's a big F. you got to stay motivated and, and actually continue to build stuff that people want to use. But if, if that does happen, um, I think growth can happen in those out years uh, even if it, it, if it didn't necessarily go viral right up front, and so, and especially if you if you kind of abstract, Parkcaster into yes, we are we are building both a protocol, but our, our team at least is also building a social app, all right, Warpcast, and and kind of like that, the shape of that. I think um, there's a version of things where you know I want to make Warpcast as successful as possible because I actually think that, that it's a really Great way to drive growth of the Farcaster protocol, but I also see a version of this where warpcast continues to make progress, albeit not necessarily a breakout success as a kind of like independent social app, but it's it in in our efforts over the next couple of years to continue to grow, especially with quality the the core of the protocol that's actually the if if you're going to look back on it, it was like this is actually what kicked off the, the growth of Farcaster as a protocol. Um, and so I, I don't want to resign to saying no, we're, we're never going to be figured out with Warpcast. It's like, no, I actually think that that is the most likely and fastest path to making Farcaster a success. And so we're going to continue to invest in it. But, but I do think that with these protocols, it just sometimes they, they take time. And, and I think one of the downsides to crypto is because of the ease of financialization upfront, um you get these situations where people talk a big game promise a lot then all of a sudden everything's financialized before a lot of the stuff is built and i think it really becomes difficult to stay motivated for some of these teams when it's like okay well why i already got you know, if they were there only for the money, like I already got the money. So like, why, why am I continuing to do that? And so I think where for me, the, the experience at Coinbase is, is useful in that you continue to build because there's something on the horizon that you're looking forward to. And in the case, I think for Warpcast is like, yes, there's a financial component. Like we hope to make money with Warpcast, but there's also a version of it is if if I can t- 10, 20, 30 years from now look back and say, actually, we we were fundamental in, in shifting Internet social into a protocol-based world. And all of these new apps and services that got built on top of these credibly neutral protocols are a result of us kind of like starting that, that uh, the kindling of the fire that ends up becoming uh, kind of the decentralized protocol-based social. That would be something I'd be really proud of. and And so I think just having a longer term time horizon on that is is I don't know something that I think a lot about relative to if if you were to ask most people in kind of like web two building a centralized social company, it's like if the thing isn't taking off, you should be you know, kind of constantly iterating and you know potentially shifting to the the next idea um, versus the i want to I know what I want to build, and it's just going to take time to continue to grow it.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Well, looking forward to seeing what develops and, and how it evolves throughout the year. Obviously, uh, you know, I'm using uh, Warpcast pretty regularly. I'm on there at least every couple of days. Um, appreciate you taking the time to elaborate more on it and uh, give us a little bit of the roadmap today, Dan.
1: Thanks for having me.